Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. The, um, the events described in, the, in our portion of the gospel this morning are, I think, pretty well known. Not a whole lot of surprises. Um, it's the story of, of Jesus sending out the disciples two by two to minister. Uh, it's recorded in Matthew and Luke as well, so what we call the synoptic gospels, those three gospels. Uh, it is obviously extremely important whenever we see something like this that's recorded in multiple gospels, especially in this case all three, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of the synoptic gospels. And the reason we call that, in case you wonder where that word comes from, that just means looking at it from the same perspective. Because you read the Gospel in Mark, and you read the Gospel in Matthew, and you read the Gospel in Luke, and you think, yeah, I got that. And then you read the Gospel of John. It's like, where is this guy coming from, right? John's very different. And so we collect Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They have a perspective, and then John's perspective is quite different. Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this particular event. Um, I would suggest um, it's meaning and its purpose, however, although we, it's well known, um, is a little bit elusive. I mean, we read the text and we read what happened and go, okay, I can understand that. But then you get over to Luke 22, and Jesus says to the disciples, in effect, if you'll allow me to paraphrase, what you guys did before, you're not going to do that again. So, okay, great. <laughs> what was that? Was that like a one-time thing, just a one-off, and we don't do it again? Because it looks that way. So figuring out exactly what Mark is trying to say here, I mean, the content of the text is straightforward. But figuring out exactly what Mark is about, um, a, little bit, a little bit different. We have the disciples uh, being called together, being sent out, uh, powerful, powerful ministry with great results, but then it's not repeated, not quite like that. So um, that's our question this morning. Exactly what is Mark trying to say here? So let's get right to the text. Uh, chapter 6, and so we get in the seventh verse. He, that is Jesus, summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And he was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals, he added, don't put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And if any place does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil, many sick people, and healing them. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and ask that um, our minds, our hearts would be open to everything you have for us in your word, Lord. We know you have something for us to learn here, Lord, and we want to learn it. Help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, the content's pretty straightforward and clear. Calls the disciples, gives them authority, power, gives them a job to do, gives them some basic instructions, how they'll go, how they'll live, what they're going to do, and then he sends them out, and they go, and if you know your chapter... If you've been reading ahead, and I was so blessed uh, this last week, I've had two or three people ask me about some of the things we're going to be talking about in this chapter, like they were reading ahead. 
that really blesses my heart to know that you're doing that. It makes it, I think, so much more meaningful when we do that. But if you have read ahead, you'll know that in verse 30, when they come back, they got this glorious, man, we just were tremendous, right? So we know that it was very successful, right? But as we read that, again, this question, at least for me, and this is the question I've been working with all week, is exactly what is Mark trying to say to us here? Why is this information here? What's he trying uh, to communicate? You know, up to this point, Jesus has been going around. He's been doing all the preaching, all the teaching, all the healing, all the casting out demons, all of that stuff. He was doing it. And all of a sudden, we have the... um, apostles um, kind of put on the spot, if you will. I mean, Jesus is gone, and we're about two years into his ministry. Most reconstructions of the gospel put this right at the end of the second year. We've got a little less than a year left in Jesus' earthly ministry. Um, Jesus has gone from the obscurity of a Galilean you know, village to now his name is pretty well known. He's attracted a lot of attention, um, and things are really moving forward, and then all of a sudden, Boom, it turns to the disciples, kind of sudden-like, right? Evidently, no warning. Nothing in the, um, nothing in the text indicates he gave the apostles any warning at all. Um, if you've been following uh, the chosen, I think this particular moment is depicted so well, where he calls them together, and they don't have a clue what's going on, and he says, oh, by the way, you're leaving, you're going out two by two, and you're going to do all this stuff, and they all have like this deer-in-the-headlight look like, Really? No. Lord, I think you got things backwards here, right? You do. We watch. That's how this works. And so, and I think that's probably a pretty accurate representation of, of what's going on here. Um, but they go out, and, and, they're, and they're incredibly successful. Now, if you compare Matthew's version and Luke's version, some of the details, like the order in which he gives them instructions, and some of the terminology isn't exactly the same, but there's two things that are completely consistent. The call to preach and the authority to do it. The authority to speak, even to the point of casting out evil spirits and healing the sick, all to the end of preaching the gospel. Those are the consistent things. Um, but again, this question of why, why are we told this, especially in light of the fact that it's not repeated? Luke 22 makes that very clear. You did it that way then. You're going to do it a lot differently now. And Luke 22 is when he says, if you have two cloaks, take them. You know, if you have extra supplies, take them. In fact, if you don't have a sword, go buy one. Right? Pretty radical thing for Jesus to say. So a very different approach moving forward. What's, what's going on? What's going on here? And then the other question that I think we want to talk about, at least in, in my mind, it certainly comes to the forefront, is what is the relationship between this event that we just read about and the beheading of John the Baptist? This is one of the questions I was asked by a couple different people this week reading ahead. If you've read the text, you know that here in the first several verses, we have Jesus calling the disciples, giving them instructions, empowering them, and sending them out. And they go out, but then there's a big block in the middle before they come back where we have all the details of John the Baptist being beheaded. And then as soon as that happens, as soon as that's done, and John the Baptist's body is taken care of, we have a very, very definite description of what was, how his body was taken care of. The very next verse, the disciples come back. So this whole, the whole episode of John the Baptist being beheaded is inserted right in the middle of this story. 
So what's, what's the connection there? There's got to be some kind of connection. I would note Matthew doesn't make that connection as strongly as Mark does, but Luke does. Luke, along with Mark, makes that connection between these events and John the Baptist being beheaded pretty, pretty clearly. And so that's the second question. First one, what's Mark trying to say? Second one, what does it have to do with John the Baptist being killed? And then thirdly, is well, what does that say to us? What do we do with this information when we gather it? So let's just kind of go through those um, one at a time. Begin by looking at the text in just a little bit of detail. It starts in verse 7. Jesus summons the 12 together, so it's a deliberate act. It's not like they're just walking on the road and the conversation happens to go this way. No, he is very deliberate. He calls the 12 together. And he sends them out. It's, it's a very deliberate thing. And he gives them authority even over the unclean spirits. This is totally new and different for them. This is not the, I mean, they were used to the idea of messengers going out, of heralds going out, of people going out and carrying a message. But the idea of the average Jewish person walking around casting out demons, no, that's, that's not on anybody's roadmap, right? This is all very new, okay? So he does that. He instructs them they should take nothing for their journey. They're going out essentially with whatever they had when they had this meeting. Like he calls them together for a meeting and he says, okay, you're going to go out, you're going to preach, you're going to heal, you're going to cast demons, and you're going to take is whatever you have with you right now. Maybe the staff. They had to go home and get the staff. But that's other than that, it's what they got on. Oh, you don't have any money? Perfect, you're not supposed to. Very, very different. Very, very different, right? Does that, he sends them out, and while they're out, they're doing exactly that. They're preaching the gospel. And when they come back, they say, it's great. As to their lodging, now the lodging isn't quite as radical as maybe it sounds to us, this idea of you go to a place, you go into a home, you stay there, don't move around, stay in that house until you leave. That really sounds like strange to us. You knock on the door of a complete and total stranger and say, hey, can I stay in your house for the next two weeks while I preach the gospel in your community, right? Wouldn't have been quite so strange in the first century. Hospitality uh, in both Jewish culture and in much of the rest of the Middle East, much of Mediterranean culture, was generally extended but especially among the Jewish people. A Jew that was traveling could knock on the door of a fellow Jew and expect some sort of accommodation. Again, it might be, you know, in the stall with the animals, but there'd be something, right? So that's not quite as radical as it sounds, and yet it still it speaks of a very great deal of dependence. They're not going to have anything prearranged. No, no reservations, you know, with the Airbnb. None of that, right? None of that. Nope. Cold, everything's cold call with these guys. They're going to knock on the door. They're going to ask for a place to stay. They're going to knock on the door. They're going to start preaching. They're going to knock on the door and ask for food. Yeah. Very, very different kind of experience that's laid out for them. But they do it, and it works. And they come back, and they've had great, great responses, right? So the text is really, really pretty clear. But what about these questions, right? What about the question of why? Why is it here? Well, one obvious answer as to why it's here is this is where it happened. I mean, Mark, Mark is kind of giving us an account of things. But there was a lot of things that happened, John says, that weren't written down. So this must be, for some reason, even if Mark is just laying things out, there's got to be a reason for this. And I think if we look at the progress, and this is, these are conclusions I'm drawing. They're not directly from the text, so you're certainly free to disagree. But as I'm reading this account, I can't help but think of what's going on in the larger account, the larger 
recalling of what is being said. Jesus has gone from relative obscurity in Galilee. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's had tremendous results. He's healed the sick, he's raised the dead, he's multiplied food, he's, you know, cast out demons, if you'll allow me, the the full messianic slate, if we can say that. His notoriety, his fame is is spreading very rapidly. We're reaching the end of his second year, and I'm going to suggest that for Jesus, that final year is coming into perspective. These events are all leading to something, and he knows he's got about a year left. Now, you think about a year left in his ministry, that... I don't know if that speaks to our heart as much as if any one of us were to suddenly be told you have one year left to live. That puts one year in a much different perspective, doesn't it? Especially if you have, if you have a big project you're working on. Like there's, you know, your life's work, you want to accomplish it. You got one year left to do it. That kind of gives you a sharpened focus. So I think for Jesus, focus is, is starting to come into place. He realizes that things are, are wrapping up. And so... He's going to send out the 12, empowering them for ministry, preparing them for spiritual opposition, preparing them for both acceptance and rejection, because this may not be the norm now, but it's going to be. What they are experiencing in in this window of ministry that Jesus calls them to, it may not be the norm for that point in space and time, but in about a year, Jesus is going to be gone. Be crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended unto heaven, and now what do we do? Well, they're going to have a commission, they're going to have a call, they're going to have instructions, and it's going to require something of them that they here two years in are not prepared for. So I would suggest that the reason Luke is, in, or rather Mark is including it, is so that we can see Jesus very deliberately preparing his disciples for the time when he's not there, when the responsibility of establishing the kingdom will fall on them. Yes, by the power of his spirit, God's spirit, but physically, they're going to be it. They're going to be the ones walking in the village, walking into a city, knocking on a door, standing in from the marketplace, saying what needs to be said. And this is a period of training, right? No record like this of anything like this again until after the ascension. But after the ascension, it will be the norm. You know, there's, there's an exp- expression we use a lot. People use it a lot in the military. People use it a lot in first responders. It's when we, um, we come to a crisis, many of you will know this, when we come to a crisis, we do not rise to the level of the occasion we fall to the level of our training. You know where that came from? Fourth century Greek poet. Yeah. Got to give him credit, right? I won't even try to pronounce his name or read that quote in Greek. But it came from a fourth century. It was already an established fact. If you're not trained for something, you're not likely to do well in it. So Jesus is actively preparing his disciples well ahead of the occasion so they will know how to respond. The extreme nature of this experience, no, no advanced planning, no extra food, no extra money, not even an extra garment, The extreme nature of that will make the difficult situations much easier to respond to when they arise, and they will. Book of Acts makes that very clear. The idea of itinerant preachers and teachers and philosophers was common in the first century. What wasn't common is the way these guys are going to do business. 
They're not going to ask for money. Right? They're not going to travel from house to house. The statement that Jesus makes about staying in one house when they get to a village, that sounds kind of awkward to us. But that was there to make a distinction between the way these guys would act and these gals would act and the normative nature of itinerant preachers, teachers, philosophers, whatever, in the first century. That'll be an issue, for example, for the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 is in Athens, he will be accused of being one of those stereotypical first century wandering around the empire, you know, philosophizing and, and getting his money wherever he can, taking advantage of whoever he can to make a living. Jesus is making it clear this is going to be different. Their methodology will be very distinct. Their task will be different, right? So I think it's pretty, it's pretty clear that Jesus chose this moment for the very specific purpose of beginning some very directed preparation for the twelve that they would be ready when they would be called upon to minister, right? But that leaves the second question. How does all this relate to the death of John the Baptist? The fact that John dies at about the same time, I would suggest he was already dead when these events had happened, right? And I can offer an explanation. This is my conclusion. You're certainly free to disagree. But I think that the death of John the Baptist had a profound influence on Jesus. Not simply the loss of somebody close to him, but because it furthered that narrowing of his focus, the reality that his ministry was on earth, was drawing to a close. You know, I, I think we, we're so much more comfortable with the deity of Jesus than we are with his humanity. I think we really do struggle with, I do, right? And, but when Jesus prayed that prayer in the Garden of Eden, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He was speaking from his heart. He was speaking from that, that human core that said, maybe there's yet another way. His focus was clear. Consciously understands he has to die on Calvary's cross. But in the humanity of his heart, hoping as we would, maybe there's just some other way this can work out. Lord, if it is possible, let that cup pass from me. And I would suggest that the death of John the Baptist confirmed what Jesus already knew, that his ministry was heading to a point of death, even as John the Baptist. The world was not going to accept the message. The people of Israel were not going to accept the message. The leadership of Israel was not going to accept the message, because if they were, John's probably still alive. John's death, I would suggest, confirmed to Jesus that he too would die what we would define as a very early death, right? wasn't just the loss of John as a friend. Jesus knew that John's death signaled his days were very limited. And so he sent the twelve out because he knew his death was coming quickly. This is all about preparing the disciples for something that will be laid literally in their laps, right? The end is in focus. And Jesus is starting to set it up. He's setting up the things that will lead to his death. He's preparing down to the last detail that he will not only die, but that things will proceed correctly after his death. That's what this passage is all about. The very deliberate way that Jesus broke his own death. Now that brings us to our last question. What does this say to us? What does it mean to us? First of all, I don't think it's a universal plan for evangelism. 
You know, the idea of you got to go two by two, you got to take a staff, and don't take anything else, right? You know, there are so many questions. I hope I don't step on toes here, but maybe I will. There are so many questions that divide us in the body of Christ because we fail to distinguish between that which is simply stated in Scripture, that which is historical, and that which is normative, right? In this case, there are some historical things that are not suggested as normative. Like, when you go out, don't take anything with you, you know. If you're going to be effective in ministry, you have to start out broke. No, I don't think that's normative, right? But the commission to go out and to preach the gospel, that's normative. That's the universal. And I think if we could kind of keep those things apart, it would help us in some of our disagreements. But certainly here... Certainly here what he's talking about is only, only universal in the expectations that the apostles would have. They're going to have a rough time. I mean, even the, 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 most, the quickest perusal of the book of Acts makes it pretty clear. clear things were not going to be easy. And this is preparation for that. The idea that they would go out in dependence the extent to which they would depend on themselves would be significantly limited. Now there's a universal. Not that we go out broke, but that we go out with the understanding that when we are ministering in any fashion, and this of course does not just apply to those in some kind of formally recognized ministry, any one of us, when we find ourselves in an opportunity to share the gospel, when we find ourselves in, a, in an opportunity to pray for a hurting neighbor or a hurting friend, to the extent that we depend upon ourselves, we're completely limited. To the extent we step into an environment like that, saying, on my own, I have nothing to offer here. Jesus, you've got to move through me. That's where our strength comes from. That's where our ability comes from. I think it's a really good example of um, the Lord preparing his people simply for the demands of following him, what it is to be a follower of Christ, the kind of abandon that he called upon the disciples to express. Nothing extra, no specific plans where they're going to go, where they're going to stay, simply doing what they had seen him do. And that's the best we can do, is to simply do what we have seen Jesus do. And any one of us that has Christ in our heart has seen him do something. Any one of us that has the experience of salvation has seen God do something. And we can share that. And that's how the kingdom is built, by us sharing what he has done. Paul, who was certainly no, um, no foreigner to this whole experience, said this to the Philippian church, these things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Just do what I've done before you, Paul tells the Philippian church. And then he says, the God of peace will be with you. That letter was written from a prison cell. But Paul could say, I can sit in this prison cell with complete peace because I'm just following the one who went before me knowing that I'm in the center of his will, doing what he called me to do. You see, ultimately, I find all of this incredibly encouraging. I read this text, I find encouragement in it, not in the fact they were so successful, not in the fact they were able to come back to Jesus and say, Lord, we were casting out demons and we were healing people and great stuff was happening. Remember how Jesus reacted to that? He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. That's pretty cool. 
Lord, we went out, and you'll allow me the expression, we kicked Satan's butt. That's pretty cool. But Jesus said, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Rejoice that your names are in heaven. That's the victory that we seek. That's the really good news that we can hope for that, right? What's encouraging to me is when I'm in, I'm in pursuit of that. That's, that's where I want to be going. That's where I want to head. I, I'm not that interested in hearing that, you know, X number of, you know, demons fell, whatever. I want to hear that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But along the way, I just speaking for myself, I've found that kind of a challenge. The Christian walk has been and continues to be a challenge. And I can say, God, you sure ask a lot of me. Can we be that honest? God, you really ask a lot of me. Or I can say, you know, God, whatever you're asking of me in this moment is something you have won, already prepared me for. Lord, whatever I'm facing in this moment is something you've already prepared me for because you don't give any of us anything we're not prepared for. Right? This morning we had like preacher's worst fear. Total computer meltdown. Oh, God. Now, for those of you who are younger and have grown up with these devices, you missed the joy that some of us older folks have of seeing all of this come into our lives, right? We have a, we have a perspective on technology you don't have because we were there when it washed up on the beach, if you will. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget my very first experience. We were, pastor, we were youth pastors in Homer, and I was substitute teaching in, in the uh, old Russian village near Anchor Point. What an experience that was, right? And um, one of the things, I, I looked on, the, you know, the teacher left the list of things to cover. Computer class, I had never physically touched one. But he said in his notes, not to worry, you've got a prep period just before that. And there's a great tutorial right on the... You know, I think it was like a, is it a disc or VHS? I don't even remember. There's a great tutorial. You watch that while the kids are out on the playground. When they come back in, you'll look smart. It worked. It worked. And that's how I, that was my basic instruction. You know, so I thought, right? Then we go down to Huna, and I actually had a computer. Had a great young man in the church in Homer. His name was Marvin. Marvin bought us a computer and gave me this computer. I was so equipped. And we go down to Huna, and... Again, it was just like, oh, my word. I'd be typing away, getting stuff ready. And then I would, I'm just going to have to watch expressions to see how many get where this is going, right? I would get up, I would walk across the office, and I'd get a book. Okay, some of you remember, right? I'd get a book, and I'd come back, and I would touch the computer. It would go black. Boom. My God. I lost everything I had. So after months of frustration, I called Marvin up. Marvin, what is happening? He said, well, first of all, are you wearing shoes? I said, uh, no. You have a wool, wool socks on? Yeah. As I was walking across the carpet in wool socks, I was building up a static charge. And those early computers were like hypersensitive to static. And one little tick, they died. Right? He said... Leave your shoes on, number one. And then that, that wasn't the embarrassing part. The second part was he said, this is really bad. He said, 
you say you're losing all your work. Yeah. He said, are you saving anything? I said, what? <laughs> oh, that's what that word means. So there was a pretty steep learning curve for me, right? So frankly, and it was a lot of, was a lot of embarrassment and frustration along the way, when stuff like this morning happens, I react a little bit better than I norm normally would, right? Now, I can't say my reaction was perfect. I did express frustration, but, and I mean, that's a pretty, you know, mild example. I know that many here, even right now, you're facing huge challenges. But if you'll stop and think about wh what brought you here this far, there is nothing we encounter that somewhere along the line he didn't prepare us for. Or at the very least, bring someone in our life that has experienced it and can help us through it. That's the really good news. Now, the rest of it, uh, you can take it any way you want to. Whatever you're going through right now is a pretty good chance is preparing you for what's coming next, good and bad. But the good news is this. He never, ever leaves us unprepared. He went out of his way to prepare the 12 for what was coming their way. He was deliberate in preparing the 12 for what was coming their way. And he is equally deliberate as we seek him. He is equally deliberate in preparing each and every one of us for what we're in now. He's already prepared us for that and what's coming. That's the kind of God we serve. He's that good. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you not only know what's coming, you're not only conscious and aware of what's around the corner, Father, but you very carefully, deliberately, and mercifully prepare us, Lord. Lord, we can, we can read the news, we can, you know, listen to it, and we can get really, really nervous, Father. We can get really wound out and upset. Father, we can be facing family situations, and we can really, really, Lord, get some anxiety and stress, and a lot of it is really reasonable. But that doesn't mean you haven't prepared us, Lord. And Father, for the good times, the times when things are going well, we know how to handle that with judgment, Father, and discernment, um, knowing better than to expect things will always be that way. Lord, we just want to thank you this morning. We want to thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. We see it in so many ways. Father, it's so easy for us. We're so quick to thank you for blessings. Think of the word of James who said, consider it all joy when you encounter various difficulties, trials, hard circumstances, Lord. That really doesn't make a lot of sense in our minds until we remember that through it we are prepared for other things that may come our way, that we can not only, Lord, endure them with confidence, rise over them in victory, Father, but also help others. And in that process, see your kingdom built in us and through us in the lives of others. So we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We ask for your wisdom as we go forward day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.